fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology. We make it a reality. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, the physics phenom, Dr. Michael Dennett. You know, Dan, it is great to be here, and it's always sad to be proven a little bit wrong. I made a claim in an earlier episode that Dungeons & Dragons is by far the best ever episode, not mm -hmm. realizing that we would ever tackle the great Lord of the Rings. So um, <laughs> I may have to retract some earlier statements. Well, you know, you, you may not be alone there, Denon, because I made a couple of promises that uh, I've now <laughs> saddled you guys with the burden of actually doing. So <laughs> I don't want to be proven wrong, but I don't think so, um, because there's one man who has yet to be proven wrong, and that's our enigmatic engineer, <laughs> Ben Siebser. Ben, how are things going up there on the brain station? You know, Dan, they're going great. I'm so excited to be talking Lord of the Rings and how uh, how the rings actually work. I think that's some good tech that we need to get into today, Dan. <laughs> Uh, I think so, too. And, you know, luckily, it's not just the three of us, guys. Uh, we have possibly one of my favorite Fascinating Nouns guests of all time. Uh, he's the author of A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 Billion Years in 12 <laughs> Pithy Chapters. Now, if my math is correct, that's roughly three, 380 million years per chapter. Ben, I'm sure that even you love that level of efficiency. Uh, that's <laughs> that's pretty, pretty yeah. good stuff. Um, he's the senior senior editor of the journal Nature, where he's been for, I think, roughly 4.6 billion years. And he's probably most famous for being, as I said, on Fascinating Nouns. We've done two episodes. We discussed the aforementioned history of life on Earth, but also the science of Middle Earth, uh, which is where this issue came in. Henry G., welcome to our show. Well, thank you. And I can't possibly follow that wonderful introduction <laughs> well, thank you. well so i will you know just for for those listening at home you know one of the things that we that we've talked about on the fasting announce episode was the unification of the one ring you know i'll call it the one ring dilemma where in the book you talk about all the powers of the one ring but you weren't able to reconcile them all and i promised you that we would do that and today's that day henry today's the day we're going to uh make your dreams come true Hopefully. Well, I'm I am sitting down, so um... okay. <laughs> good, good, good. So. Now, uh, so so before we start, I want to quote you, if I may. Uh, this is the last chapter of your book, The Science of Middle Earth, which I believe is still available in all your local bookstores. Uh, so here it is. We come to it at last: the small, seemingly insignificant artifact on which rests the fate of Middle Earth. I've put off discussing the One Ring because I cannot as yet propose a fully convincing explanation of how it works. Now, you are a brilliant man, Henry, uh, but you are only one. We are three. We are the brain trust, and uh, we are going to solve this problem for you. Uh, but we have to start someplace. You know, much like mm. Frodo on his long journey, he had to start in the Shire, and that's where we are right now. So can you tell me a little bit, for those uninitiated who, who might be listening, what is the One Ring and what are its powers? In brief. The one, in brief, the One Ring started in Tolkien's children's story, The Hobbit, where the protagonist, Bilbo Baggins, finds this small golden ring, I have an example here, mm -hmm. and he uses it to make himself invisible. 
so he can uh, get inside uh, the dragon's lair without being seen and so on. But when Tolkien came to write The Lord of the Rings, uh, the ring appeared and it had a much weightier theme. It turned out that it contained a lot of the personality of its maker, the Dark Lord Sauron. So mm -hmm. it's got to do that. Uh, another thing is that it was somehow in communication with all the other powerful rings, the rings of power made by the elves and so on. So it has to do that. Um, and also, if somebody who isn't Sauron wears it, it acts as a kind of psychic amplifier, expanding their powers of domination. Um, and so I had to try in my book, The Science of Middle Earth, available in all good bookstores and online uh and uh, i had to uh, try and explain all that and it's not just it wasn't just me i had a lot of colleagues at nature working on this problem we called ourselves toltec toltec the tolkien technology research group and we couldn't explain it either and um so with the finest minds in science research we couldn't do this but the main discrepancy was trying to work out i mean working out how it could be a uh, a storage device for Sauron's personality was a big ask. But the main problem was how do you make a person and what they're carrying invisible? Uh, and uh, how does that work? Um, uh, so uh, I couldn't find... The mark of a good scientific theory is some uh, conceptual framework that explains all the phenomena you're seeking to explain. And right. I couldn't find a single conceptual framework that explains the one ring. Mm -hmm. I've managed to explain a lot of things in the science of Middle Earth, but this is the one thing I couldn't explain, which I thought was kind of appropriate, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, given that it was the most iconic uh, feature of uh, Tolkien's Middle Earth, and certainly in The Lord of the Rings. Sure. Um, so, so that is the kind of, uh, this is the problem, gentlemen, that we have mm. to solve. <laughs> well, you put the greatest minds on it. Well, well, so I actually might put a caveat on that. You put some of good minds. You put some good minds on it. Um, <laughs> we are going to put the greatest minds on it. Henry. And we're going to start with your book. You know, uh, you have a couple of great hypotheses. But, you know, even in, in our real world, right, we have this, this uh, we don't have a unified theory of forces in the universe, right? Uh, the theory of everything. We don't have that. Uh, but, you know, we're going to reconcile invisibility. That is our gravity here, I guess, right? Uh, um, is, is we have to reconcile that with the other forces in the universe. Uh, but let's start with your book. Let's start with the first thing you mentioned. Um, well, actually, I don't know if it's the first thing you mentioned. It might have been the third thing, but I'm going to make it the first. And that's <laughs> the ability of this ring to read the thoughts of people wearing other rings and this ring. There seems to be some kind of connection here. So, Denon, you read the book. Let's. Where, what do you see here? Let's build on Henry's hypotheses, and let's see if we can make this work. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. We've talked about this before, and I like, um, you know, Henry went immediately, I think, to quantum entanglement because that's the obvious thing. When you have multiple objects and they appear to be in touch with each other, um, we've talked a lot about the, you know, electrons and the wave function, and you make two photons and you move them apart and they're entangled and you measure one and you get the result at the other. Mm -hmm. um, and this is kind of a nice way to think about things. You know, in the quantum world, um, things that appear to be multiple objects are often just one object. Um, it's a single wave function that defines them all. And that allows you to have this kind of communication. Now, I think one of the challenges with quantum entanglement is we, we haven't really been able to understand how to truly send information 
actually through a quantum entangled wave function. But you do have things that act together. So controlling the rings, I think, is actually um, very understandable through quantum entanglement. The communication might be a little trickier, but mm -hmm. I, I do find it interesting. And now, Henry, it's, it's been a while. You said you've been waiting 20 years. How do you feel about Wi-Fi and Bluetooth? Because that seems to solve the communication problem. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I did originally write the book 20 years ago. Uh, so so things like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth um, probably weren't as much as they are in the as, as ubiquitous as they are in the model, modern world. Mm. And I, of course, immediately went for the most whizzy, spectacular. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, st yeah. I started thinking about uh, quantum entanglement because there's another another amazing technological artifact in the Lord of the Rings, and that's the seeing stone, the Palantir. Oh, yeah. Now, there were supposed to be seven of those originally, and um, I hypothesized that they were basically quantum entangled, but quantumly entangled, they were effectively the same thing. Now, um, in uh, a critic of my book, a very good friend of mine called Brian Clegg, who's a science writer and who's a physicist, said, gave up the, uh, he uh, came up with the objection that you did which you don't actually communicate between the two right but my, my little trick around that is the palantiria are always seen as very uncertain guides to deeds you're not quite sure yes. what it is you're seeing in, in the palantir so so that's my kind of rather poetical way around that um so i wrote about the palantiri uh, uh, earlier in in the science of middle earth um so when i got to the ring it, I, it was in my mind it was quite uh, it was quite obvious to think that the the, the ring uh, the the ring communicates with uh, the other rings because they're in a sense the same object. They yes. are in, they are entangled uh, objects because it says in the Lord of the Rings that when Sauron put the ring on, the elves were immediately aware of him and took theirs off. So then I thought, ah. Oh, how is it that they're aware when they only put the ring on? So I came up with some idea of maybe there's some some superconducting supercurrent that goes round and round the ring and putting a finger in it actually disrupts it in some way or, or adds some... Oh, oh. But um, so you can see how difficult it was. Um, but uh, that was my invocation of quantum uh, uh, entanglement in the in the one ring. Yeah, no, I like that. Well, I like the the Wi-Fi elements kind of interesting. You know, you guys didn't see this beforehand, but I was trying to get my headset to work. Uh, they're Bluetooth connections, right? It took me a while. I don't know if you guys saw the stress on my face as they wouldn't quite work before showtime. Yeah. Uh, so it's not quite as it's not as reliable. Uh, you know, and Ben, I know you know about Wi-Fi. So the, uh, <laughs> the the reliability factor, you know, we need it to be a little bit better if we're going to do it on the one ring. Yeah, well, well thankfully, I, I think uh, Sauron has... Uh, Somehow, despite being in the past, Sauron clearly has, uh, you know, Bluetooth version 10 or whatever that is uh, <laughs> yeah. much more reliable and, and quick to connect than what we currently have. I mean, I think it makes perfect sense that, you know, if these are, you know, you can see it both the Palantiri and in the rings, you know, if they are on the Middle Earth Wi-Fi cell, whatever network going on mm -hmm. here, um, there's no reason that as soon as Sauron puts on that ring... Well, now it's turned on. It's making this connection to the other rings, and the elves, being the the smart folks they are, uh, can detect that there's now some sort of communication going on between the rings, and they and them being smart, unlike say the the humans and the dwarves with their rings, uh, know to take them off. 
<laughs> like um, that. That, that, that actually feeds with another concept I did in the in the science of Middle Earth, which is the elves aren't bucolic. The elves have a technology that is so amazingly in advance of the mm -hmm. hobbits, who are the people through which we see the Middle Earth, that mm -hmm. it is actually indistinguishable from magic, as Arthur C. Clarke said, right. or it seems at one with nature. Uh, uh, they can breed, I mean, the elves are effectively immortal, they can breed trees, uh, mm -hmm. which we can't because they only have a short life time. But there is a scene towards the end of The Lord of the Rings where the elves and Gandalf are standing still with each other and communicating as if as if in thought. So yeah. they have a kind of telepathy. So this could be a kind of totally technological telepathy that yep. could rely on Bluetooth version 10. Um, yeah. and, uh, um, and it could be mediated through fungal hyphae or, you know, or, or through modified organisms of, of um, no, I've only had one cup of coffee this afternoon. I haven't are been breeding... at the mushrooms again, Daniel. Yeah. So okay. I, I was wondering. I was, I was wondering. <laughs> if the elves are breeding the trees, for all we know, they're putting their uh, access points in those trees all over Middle Earth. <laughs> uh, well, of course. And of course, we know that elfish light is bioluminescence. Uh, and... Uh, um, oh well, I could go on about the file of Galadriel for ages. Well, let's let's yeah, let's, let's put John hold there. And you know, in our cell towers now, everyone tries to make them look like trees. Uh, they don't do quite mm -hmm. a good as, as good a job as the elves, but mm -hmm. uh, but they they do try. Yeah. Well, so so you know, talk about telepathy and and you know, throwing your mind around. Let let's go to the second thing here, which is the storage of Sauron's personality, because in a lot of ways, you know, that is being transferred on to the wearer, and you know. As you always do, Henry, in your book, you have this kind of poetic description that the high craftsmanship seems to have imparted his personality on the object. Uh, now, that's, you know, more of a poetic way to describe it. But you do talk about how, um, you know, this could maybe a storage could be offloaded in another dimension through brains and all that. Uh, so, Denon, you read this. Uh, you are not only part of the brain, B-R-I-N, trust. You Wait, did I spell that right? B -R I think it's called you the brand trust. <laughs> the brain trust, B-R-A-I-N trust. Uh, but you're also the maybe the sole member of the B-R-A-N-E trust. So l tell me how does this work in Henry's um, book and, and how true could this be? Well, you know, I thought Henry did a great job of describing this and, and I love this idea. We've talked about a lot on our show, the idea emerging out of string theory that you actually have these two dimensional um, extra dimensions, these sheets, um, you know, physicists being what we are, instead of calling them membranes, we just shortened it to brains to confuse everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem that's being tried that we're trying to solve is that gravity is so much weaker than all the other forces. It feels strong because it only attracts and you got a lot of mass, you know, shoved together in the earth and it feels big, but mm. at, the, at the actual scale, it's very weak. Um, and it basically leaks into this extra dimension. Um, and the other forces don't, they live on the sheet that is our world. Um, and what that gives you is if you're using some sort of gravitational storage instead of electromagnetic storage, which is mm. what our computers are, access to kind of this whole other dimension to store it in. And, you know, I I hope, I mean, this is still a, a, a wild idea of string theory. We don't have experimental mm -hmm. confirmation of it, but it would yeah. be cool to get it in my lifetime and figure out how to actually, you know, connect and talk to another brain. I I think it's, it, it, it's weirdly one of the exciting um, iffy things that we in physics like to think about from my perspective. And I love the idea of it as a storage device. 
Mm -hmm. um, it was really, I couldn't think of anything else. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I was just trying to give myself the challenge and, you know, with my sure. physicist friends, I came across these articles about brains and other dimensions and things. And mm. I tried to come up with a hypothesis that you could have some kind of offline storage. But there's also another thing about the ring. Um, the ring is, it's, uh, it has a lot of Sauron's personality in it, so much so that it has agency of its own. It's mm -hmm. a character. And one of the things that it's notorious for is it becomes heavier or lighter or bigger or smaller um, uh, it, un in unpredictable ways. So, you know, there could be some... So I thought, well, maybe this is to do with transference of mass or uh, between, between our brain and the sort of extra-dimensional realm in which gravity can also operate so that's one of one of the things that i chose to one of the ways i tried to reconcile that yeah well that's so and, that's part three so that's that the the size and shape that's part three we're so I, we'll get there i think we got an easy solve well, actually why don't we just solve that right now then and the it changing its size how could we possibly get a ring to change its <laughs> well, size and shape I, I will say I do like Henry's extra brain, but Henry, one thing you yeah. need to understand, my, my expertise in physics is the study of foams, literally bubbles, and, um, and we, we, do, we do attempt to solve everything as a foam structure, mm -hmm. and so um, we, we like the idea that maybe the one ring is actually secretly a foam structure despite being gold, mainly a gold foam, and it's the changing in the... Um, gas cavities in the ring that are changing its size as it expands and shrinks so hey, there is always I just thought i just thought of something yeah could go that ahead. explain why could that explain could you put in that in that he winks mm -hmm. conspiratorially <laughs> could that explain why when you put a ring in the fire it doesn't heat up because it's got some heat dissipation yes amazingness as a foam structure, yes, yeah, it, yeah. it would it would provide that that solution as well. I like that. Mm -hmm. So as, as always, Dan, the foam is the answer. Yeah, <laughs> you nailed it. And, that, and that's so that's easier. That's part three is the changing of size and shape. Yeah. Uh, but I want to. Oh, do you, Ben? Do you have? Well, we, I know we, you well love. we've got the size and shape, but we don't have the mass, which I think is what we'll get into uh, further down the line. But yeah. I think also it, it's. I love this solve for the size and shape, but we do still need to address the mass, which I think we will get to soon enough i hope so hopefully we will um and you know i like that you're keeping us honest on the mass ben uh because we can't let that slip through our fingers no no pun intended yeah. so let's go back to this you know this idea I, I like this idea that sauron's personality is imparted on the wearer right so we you know we have it you know uh, it's in this this obvious the storage in another dimension uh it's on the ring you know it we've already discussed how the the brain uh the the personality can go back and forth on the ring um but you know this is one interesting Thing, thing that you mentioned, uh, Henry, that I, I want to make sure that we hit on is that Sauron is the only one who can wear this ring and have it work correctly. Other people wear it. Uh, they gain aspects, the dominating aspect, uh, the ex unchecked aggression of Sauron. Uh, they mm. get his long life. You know, his, his life is artificially uh, his. Uh, I'm thinking of Gollum, but the people who wear the ring, their lives are artificially prolonged. Bilbo's also, you know, one of the recipients of this power. Uh, this, I thought, was kind of an interesting idea. You describe it as uh, impotence. No, wait, no, that's not right. Impedance. <laughs> <laughs> impotence mismatch is something completely different. Um, and, you know, before we go to Henry, and, uh, ben, this is something right up your alley as an electrical engineer. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah. The input, yes, the the, uh, the impedance part is yes, what I meant. Yes. 
Yes, as an electrical engineer, where I'm very (laughs) good at the uh, analog side of it with the calculus, that's my favorite part for sure, just like antennas. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's this this interesting thing that, um, you know, if the ring has all this power, all this control, and if it's, say, a technological device, it would make sense that maybe only the creators, maybe only the elves, maybe only Sauron themselves can truly appreciate this power because only their bodies are fully in tune with what this ring can actually do. You know, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the Hobbit puts the ring on and they're just, they don't appreciate the technology. They don't know how it works. And so they're like, oh, I'm invisible now. And somehow <laughs> they managed to live hundreds of years when they shouldn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it, you know, Henry, this is kind of like the interesting part, you know, that I think you kind of hit on is that, you know, how do you know, how do you create a ring that is only for one specific person, but it can still kind of be used with other people? Well, I have no idea, but there okay. is a very uh, but but one thing you have to work with in, in Tolkien is, is when I was uh, writing the book and researching the book, I, I wanted to take everything from things Tolkien actually said and from the structure of the book. And it's very clear in the whole of Tolkien's mythology that there is a kind of ladder of creation. There are mm. very distinct orders of uh, of creature. There are human beings and hobbits and stuff. And then there are the elves that are kind of higher than that. And then mm. there are the various kinds of gods or angels. Now, mm. the gods you don't actually meet in the Hobbit of the Lord of the Rings, except in Poetic, right. but you do meet them in the Silmarillion. And beneath the gods, there are the kind of Maya, who are kind of like demigods. Mm. And uh, Gandalf belongs to that order, and so does Saruman, and so does Sauron. Um, mm. So uh, they are, they are equi- equivalent, but they're much higher than the, the elves and uh, the, the other things. So there's this, dif- there's this particular Scala Naturae. So... Um, these words, uh, Henry, that you're using. I don't know. <laughs> there, is a, don't know. there is a ladder of nature. Talk about impedance so, mismatch uh, in my brain. Uh, well, so, so Gandalf, when Frodo offers the ring to Gandalf, he says, you'll just create another Dark Lord. Um, yeah. uh, and when he offers it to Galadriel, she says, you'll just make a, instead of a Dark Lord, you'll set up a queen who will be powerful. But when Sam takes the ring for a short time, he just imagines he's... Um, has a huge garden to direct. Um, yeah. and, and when, Go- when Gollum, yeah. the meanest creature to have the ring, has it yeah. has it on, he just thinks he'll be served wonderful fish every day by the right. servants. Um, uh, so uh, they are the ring serves each person according to their nature. Um, and the the Tolkien critic Tom Shippey has said that the ring acts as a kind of psychic amplifier. What it mm-hmm. does is it takes aspects of your personality that you have already and mm-hmm. inflates them grotesquely. So mm-hmm. the question is, in a, in a literary way, is the power of the ring, does the power of the ring come from the wearer or is it imposed on the wearer? But with Sauron, the person who made the ring, it's the same thing. The right. ring is the wearer, the wearer is the ring. Um, and uh, Tolkien says that um, Sauron created the ring and put a lot of his power and his malice into the ring. And this mm. is important because he cannot create another one. Uh, right. This is he, he has to have this ring to become completely dominant over Middle-earth. 
Um, and uh, so uh, that is not true of anyone else who has the ring. Um, the ring just does weird stuff to their brains. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's from and, a technical standpoint. And I do think this goes to something you'd said a little earlier, Henry, when you made the, the offhand comment to, is it a superconductor? You stick your finger in and whatever, mm-hmm. you know, clearly, however it works, the ring is surface activated. Um, mm-hmm. And something else we're very used to now that probably wasn't quite as common when you first wrote it is touchscreens everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so we understand better both capacitance interactions with screens and resistive interactions. And as you've mentioned, these different layers of creation are going to have different skin type properties, materials. Um, and so I think it's pretty easy to think of the ring being activated differently um, from that level as well. Just when you mm-hmm. put it on your finger, you can only access more or less of the ring. Um, so mm-hmm. Gandalf and Soromon are clearly going to be, I think, the most risky because they're of the Maya. Um, Galadriel, you know, she might not be quite as dangerous with the ring because she is an elf, not a Maya. Um, but mm-hmm. again, closer to the Maya than, say, the hobbits. And so I, I think there is a technology element there as well. Um, that truly gets to this impedance idea, Dan, that you brought I'll, up. I'll have to borrow your ideas when I write the next yeah. edition. <laughs> yes, feel free, feel free. Well, well no, no, don't yeah. feel free. Give us proper credit. Oh, Maybe yeah, as a, writing a foreword, borrow. you know. Henry's yeah. an editor and academic. I expect he would give us credit. <laughs> uh, no, there we I go. I don't write anything unless I can have a reference. I just there, don't yeah. there you go. Reference unless the... I can have a reference. <laughs> this episode's a reference for sure. Well, th- you know, this is interesting because, yeah, I don't want to get too... You, you talked about string theory being a little woo, but, you know, when we... You know, and Denon, I might be pushing the boundaries of physics here, but, you know, there's this concept that when you touch something, it touches you, right? And you could <laughs> think of something where if you're putting that much of your mind, body, and spirit into the creation of something that you are imparting uh, through the laws of physics, you if you are touching it, it is touching you at that deep level as well. Well, I think you're trying to quote Newton's uh, third law. For every action, might, there's probably. an opposite reaction. Maybe, and it is, sure. It is, yeah, it is Newton. Definitely- Yeah, Newton. I mean, I do think it's interesting, right, that um, obviously when Sauron's working on the ring, um, there is probably a feedback loop here of some sort. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I do. I had never thought of it, Henry, until I read your book that really Sauron couldn't even create another ring out of this. Right. Putting so much of his power in. But I, Mm -hmm. I just going back real briefly, doing that through this idea of brains, I will say from my perspective, what's nice about it is people like to throw around the the language of extra dimensions all the time. And even though it's still a little um, edgy, shall we say, the the brain idea with gravity is about the only idea we have in physics where the extra dimensions actually connect to our dimension and it's through gravity. So Mm -hmm. there actually is a little bit of way, as you interact with the ring, if you're interacting with this other dimension and putting stuff out there, it's out there, it's gone, it's not with you anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, now that connects with the ring wraiths, which I yeah. don't think we've discussed yet. Now these were the these were originally human beings, the recipients of the nine rings, and I think their personalities have been gradually transferred into the gravitational off-brain situation, <laughs> so that they are invisible. Uh, and they have no real electrodynamic interaction with 
the real world they respond by mass they're blind they can't hear their horses do all that for them the black riders mm -hmm. um and uh you can only see them when you put on the ring uh and so that was another thing that made me made me think of you know using gravity as a kind of medium for storage of the evil power of the ring Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know, and, and that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, one of the other, well, this can be an evil power of the ring, depending on how it's used. Gollum certainly used it this way. Uh, but we've come to it. The invisibility part here, mm -hmm. Henry. Mm -hmm. uh, so the let's briefly discuss it. I mean, invisibility um, should be pretty intuitive for those listening. But basically, you know, the the bearer of the ring, they put it on and they become invisible. You know, it's triggered when they, uh, you know, slide it onto their finger like a trigger. Uh, everything's invisible at this point. Everything that they're every part of their immediate vicinity, their body, their clothes, this it's all turned invisible. Um, so we're going to kind of describe this. One of the thing, the the one of the theories I thought was super interesting in in your book, Henry, was that you uh, basically invisibility is explained by going forward in time, you know, zapping in and out of time by milliseconds. So that you're kind of you're like there and you're not there. Uh, this was this was a little crazy, but I, I kind of liked it. Even by the crazy standards of trying mm -hmm. to explain Middle Earth in terms yeah. of technology, this yeah. was skating on thin ice. Definitely. Uh, was, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was yeah. where me and my uh, nature colleagues were trying to work out a way of being invisible that you kind of flicker in and out of reality. Um, uh, that maybe it uh, also creates a delusion like blind sight in everyone else that you're really there, but nobody actually sees you sees that you're there. Um, and for various reasons, all these uh, problems, uh, I couldn't really, they didn't seem very well, even by the standards of what we're discussing, they seemed awfully contrived. Um, but the main problem with invisibility is where does the invisibility field stop? Now, if you know H.G. Wells and The Invisible Man, the invisible, and I, I can't, it's such a long time since I read it, I can't remember how he becomes invisible, but he becomes visible because he, put, he puts clothes on. His clothes are visible. It's just yeah. himself that's invisible. But when Bilbo, or Frodo, puts on the ring, he is invisible, so are all his clothes and anything he's covering. So maybe it's what we just a capacitance issue. Maybe you just have to touch something with your body and it becomes invisible. But then you have mm. to touch the air. And how does that become invisible? So um, <laughs> uh, that's what I couldn't square. And I think the reason is because the ring appears in The Hobbit, which is a fairy story. And in fairy stories, you're allowed to have magical devices that do things like fairy godmothers that make pumpkins into coaches. Um, and you're, you don't have... It's in by the convention of fairy stories, you, you don't have to ask. You don't need to ask mm -hmm. how these things work. But The Lord of the Rings is written in a much more realistic mode, which invites that kind of inquiry. At least I think it does. Um, and so it's because of these two literary modes that I think the invisibility aspect becomes difficult to square with all the other ones because in the hobbit only we only know about invisibility we haven't heard of sauron we haven't heard of the rings of the elves we haven't heard mm. of the ring race we haven't mm. heard of all the other things we've been discussing it's only the invisibility aspect but when you get to the lord of the rings that's the one aspect that doesn't work mm. you know and what i love about that henry for for our listeners is i think that is the tolkien equivalent of explaining why in physics quantum mechanics and general relativity need to be merged better because mm -hmm. 
the experiments come from two very different genres, to use a literary analogy, and different types of experiments. And so here you have these two apparently contradictory experimental facts. And the facts are real, right? When we do experiments in science, you can't deny the facts. So the facts are real. The ring makes you invisible, and the ring does all the other things. And the mm -hmm. challenge of the scientist now is to develop the new unified theory that brings them together. And so that's what I really, really love about this from a science point of view. Whether we solve it or not, Dan, we've explained to oh. our listeners exactly the conundrum oh. between quantum <laughs> mechanics and relativity. Now, of course, we will solve we, it. But what I are we hedging bets like for? Point. Well, this, this is where the engineer comes in. Yeah. <laughs> because uh -oh. you have to think about the two requirements of the ring that yeah. Sauron has created. Um, it, it One, it needs to give him power and communication with the other uh, 19 rings. And did I get that math right? Yeah, sure. Sure, yeah. sure. Uh, close and enough. It has to, uh, and it has to, if, if for some reason he loses it, it needs to get back to him. And so, you know, to go back to those ring race for a second, when, when Frodo puts on the ring, he can see the ring race. But that's just, that's just tying him into this whole psychic system going on. He can mm -hmm. see the ring race in their form because now he's connected to them. And so when he looks, he can see their true forms. Um, just because that's, you know, he's now in this world of the psychic connection of what Sauron sees. Sauron can probably mm -hmm. also see the ring race true mm -hmm. form. Um, mm -hmm. And then the invisibility is important because if the ring's trying to get back to Sauron, Sauron wants whoever's wearing the ring to be invisible so they're not going right. to get stopped. <laughs> right. Yes. It's functional. And that's where our engineer comes in. These are all functional <laughs> properties. But how does it work? Yeah. All right. All right. All right. So we've we've done it. We've 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 built up to this point. And I was I wanted to make a very dramatic point here. Uh, but then it's already hedging his bets, which makes me very, very worried here. Uh, but let's see. Get him, Denon. What do you got? Let's combine well, you know, the visibility with the rest. So, Henry, I actually think you were super close. And I agree with you that the stumbling point seems to be the the size of the field. Right. Because the reality is I you know, having this extra dimension and going into the gravitational space um, does exactly what you said, right? Because we see through electromagnetism, and I think people forget how much of the world, basically all of our senses, um, sight, hearing, sound, smell, and touch, are grounded in electricity and magnetism. That's what they are, um, different types of it, of, of the spectrum. And if you are on a brain where that does not get to you, you're only going to see the world through gravity and other people will not see you because nobody else uses gravity as their senses. So mm -hmm. I think that's that part I actually felt was solved. I think you, you should have committed to that a bit stronger um, because <laughs> but you're right. The challenge is why why not the why the clothes and not just him? You know, how does that field um, mm -hmm. decide on itself? And, and I think this comes down to um, Basically, the device is also an active computer. It's a measuring device as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so I do think we think about the device as having his personality, having computational power, and it actually knows what it's attached to. And to, to Ben's point, it's a design requirement to basically make what it needs to go into this other um, dimension, into the brain. And so you have to add a computational factor to the ring. You have to take seriously 
It has Sauron's power, its intelligence, AI, for lack of a better word. And if you add modern computational power, I think you can get the field of going into the brain to be the right size. That's that's I'm just going to interesting. I'm going to yeah. fully commit to your explanation and take it one level farther <laughs> and say it works. Oh, great. So yeah. there we are, uh, Daniel. Yeah. You've got it. I mean, when I when I wrote the book, you know, I we didn't have things like this. Do you have I mean, a hand? Yeah. Right. No, are you holding I, up your I, phone I, here for those listening yeah, at home? I'm, holding up your I'm phone. I'm holding up my iPhone, and iPhone. we didn't have those. The the, the I had a little personal digital assistant that mm -hmm. you just wrote on with a little stylus. Um, <laughs> oh and, wow! And that was as that was as uh, that was the uh, the the acme of technology at the time. And <laughs> you uh, come over on the, you come over on the Mayflower. What was that? What are we talking uh, well, about? Well, you know, it could it could only store store the names and addresses of all your friends if you were really unpopular. Right. Now now we have these devices in our pockets. <clears throat> that can access you with an instant the entire summary of human knowledge and what do we do we have arguments with complete strangers and post pictures <laughs> of our pets um, yeah. but of course those yeah. things when i wrote the book they didn't exist and when uh, ben you said and uh, and michael that the ring is has computational power i think we are within we are we are now able to make incredibly powerful computers that are the size of a ring um, here is something that is kind of elvish technology. You can't hear this now, but I'm wearing hearing aids. I'm wearing hearing aids because I'm a bit deaf. Okay. They're mm -hmm. tiny hearing aids. You can't you can't see see them, but yeah. they're connected by Bluetooth to my phone, and it's connected by my phone to the doorbell. So wherever I am in the world. <laughs> when somebody rings my doorbell, a little thing comes in my ear. I can look at my phone and I can see them at yeah. my door. And now yeah. that wasn't of that technology was not invented when I wrote the book, and yet that is every every bit elvish technology. Um, yeah. And uh, and and so you know the the ring can hold you know amazing computational power was kind of fantastical when I wrote the book, but not anymore. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I will say, you know, uh, you kind of you kind of trip me up here, Denon, because my big reveal, we had a twist here. And the twist is we're going to solve this even more. And the twist was Ben and I put together a new solve that this is actually a device, a highly advanced. You know, we talked about the elves being magical beings, but not really magical, just highly advanced. So the ring is actually a highly advanced supercomputer with AI and biometrics. And we can go through what it does, but that really does solve this. Um, although that explanation might be as excessive as being able to hear your doorbell from anywhere in the world, uh, which is, yeah. <laughs> you know. And and you still do have, to some degree, the, the problem of that invisibility. If, if we're going with this techno technological device, yeah. you have to wonder, how does it make you invisible? And, it, and instead of it being, uh, you know, we, we see these like active invisibility systems right we've seen these um or actually passive ones where um you know you have these plastic sheets that have very specific lensing issues and it makes you look invisible um but the ring the ring is small the ring can't do that so the ring has to actively project to um has to actively project to the to the where to the the viewers of the ring uh, or the viewers of the person and and the question is how do you do that and and you just have to you know you just have to raise your finger. If I if I put my finger here, mm -hmm. um, all of a sudden the ring can see everyone around me, and it can project straight to your eyes, and cancel out those um, cancel out those light waves that would normally show me, but now you can't see anything. 
there are a couple of other interesting things here. One is that um, uh, having a cloak of invisibility is a lot easier because, you know, you have materials that can, uh, I mean, it's almost possible you can have little cameras that take the background and project it to the foreground. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're kind of invisible. Um, but also uh, there is the idea that, you know, we've been talking about the ring having a psychological effect. Mm -hmm. um, well, there is the whole idea that, when we see something, we as human beings, we don't see the world as it is. Uh, mm -hmm. We see what our brains and our eyes have evolved us to to see in a scene that is most relevant to us. And the whole business of stage magic and conjuring rests on this idea that people are easily fooled by misdirection. Um, yeah. uh, and, and that there is also a, a psychological, well, it's a neurological phenomenon called blindsight, where it's caused by a certain kind of brain damage, where an object is put in front of the patient and they swear they can't see it, but mm. they can reach for it. So at some level in their conscious mind, they, they're not aware of it, but their subconscious mm. mind, they are. So I mentioned this as a kind of a side <laughs> in the book, um, but there may, other, there may be other ways of making yourself invisible. Um, but I couldn't put it all together. You know, having, yeah. having the whole thing as a device, you know, this yeah. is certainly a big help. Yes. Yeah, and I think, Dan, that's the level you and, and Ben bring to this is mm. you, you go all in on the device mm. and say we don't even need the extra dimension in the brains because our technology right. has reached a point. I'm like, well, no, it's it's still a brain. It's still gravity. The device sure. part allows you to calculate how much of you to make invisible. Um, sure. Either way, we've solved it. So I think, Dan, you've actually yeah. gone farther than your promise. You've given two solutions so? to the one ring. <laughs> I think so. I, I would, I would love two that. solutions. Well, I want to go quickly. So let uh, we got a, we got a couple more minutes here. I want to even go further. We are just gonna we're gonna give our audience and frankly you, Henry, uh, more than you asked for. So when it comes to being able to read people's thoughts, right? If we do this as a device, it goes on your finger. Well, luckily in the Brain Trust, we have a member uh, by the name of our enigmatic engineer Ben Seepser who worked with this exact same thing: the human uh, biological, uh, uh, biological electrical interfaces and scanning the brain with a device mm -hmm. on top of your head. It's a little different. This is a ring, but I'm going to postulate that you can actually tap into the neural center and with AI, knowing if you get it used to yourself, you can be able to predict your moves. Uh, is any of this pretty accurate, Ben? Yeah, there's something to that. Certainly we know that from wearing things on our, our, our fingers and certainly on our wrists, um, we have all these sorts of biometric biofeedback device. I don't know what to call them. Uh, sure. You know, non-name brand uh, health, <laughs> health monitors. Uh, sure. You know, we have all these things that can tell how fast we're walking, whether we're, whether we're walking at all or if we're just sitting on our couch all day. Uh, uh -huh. So certainly it's not unrealistic to, to expect a ring to be very aware of our body state and even to some degree our mental state from just being on your body. Uh, but to get a true, you know, mind control kind of uh, situation going on, I think it really needs to, you know, go back to that foam situation. And maybe mm. that ring is also growing some uh, sensors up to your head. Um, <laughs> or as we talked about, it, it can compel you to hold it close to your head right. um, and mm -hmm. get, get closer to the brain, which is what it really needs to do. Mm. Well, I think what Ben's described now is something that is probably already in real life, which is the Star Trek 
tricorder um, right. you know where where bones puts a little device and uh, next to a person can die and diagnose their their ailments um but it is now possible i mean published in a well-known scientific journal beginning with n other journals are available um <laughs> that it is now possible to using the awesome power of ai trademark um the, to read people's thoughts um, yeah. I think um, a couple of weeks ago there was a paper published that you know people could the brain recorder could know that people could were listening to a Pink Floyd song mm -hmm. and could even tell you which yeah. song it was. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is now possible using technological means to read people's thoughts. Uh, yeah. So it's not too much of a stretch uh, for that to have a, a ring, which is a device that can read your thoughts, uh, yes. maybe through your nerves or. Or some and, and use some kind of AI to 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 model what they were thinking and to kind of reconstruct it. Um, yeah. So goodness me, hasn't technology advanced since I first wrote this book? Yeah. Oh it yeah, certainly has. Yeah. So we we got one more thing to solve here, and that's the personality of Sauron. Well, how in the world could we possibly get it into a ring? Well, what about storage capacity is greatly increased, especially with quantum computing. So you've now downloaded, uh, or is that a word? Yeah, you download it, upload it mm -hmm. into the ring, the entirety of Sauron's personality. This seems impossible now with our current storage system, but I think with quantum computing, you could absolutely do that. Uh, and, you know, well, let's start with there. De uh, ben, what do you think about that? Is that possible? And Denon, I want to hear your thoughts on quantum computing as well after that. It's possible, but... I it's possible certainly to get all in the ring, but I also think, you know, if you think about the whole network that's going mm. on here with all the wireless and stuff, it's mm. also, it doesn't necessarily all have to be in the ring. There could be a, a mm. server somewhere that's holding uh. his, his, his personality. And what the ring is, is the ring is the secret key. You know, this is some quantum encryption stuff now. And the right. reason he can't make another ring is because his, his personality is in this server storage. Um, mm. But, but because the key is quantum entangled, he can't make another ring and he can't reuse this stored personality, whether it's in the ring or in some some kind of back uh, back room storage <laughs> that the ring is connected to. <laughs> the back room, back room storage. I like that. <laughs> there is a there is actually a literary parallel to this in Tolkien, which okay. is Sauron, Sauron's big boss, Morgoth, who mm. appears in the Silmarillion and is 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 defeated. Um, Morgoth becomes less and less. Morgoth was one of the most more powerful of the gods. He was basically like the devil who was thrown out of heaven. Uh, and um, he becomes less and less powerful as the ages go on because more and more of his evil nature is distributed throughout the world. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, it's, it's kind of a theological point that Tolkien's making that mm -hmm. even when Morgoth's gone, his evil will still survive, you know, distributed mm -hmm. throughout the world. But, right. you know, what, from what Ben was saying is that, um, is, is that this is why he wouldn't be able to become a god again, because he wouldn't be able to gather it all up again. It's all been <laughs> distributed. It's become right. a distributed network. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Distributed network. I love that. Well, and, and I have, you know, two other things here, Henry, we're still going here. The, uh, mm -hmm. the, um, I cannot impedance mismatch <laughs> if i say it slowly i get it uh, you know this is kind of interesting as well but i think 
uh, Dennett, back me up on this. You know, if you look at even the, the technology of a universal remote, right? If, if let's say that the elves, you know, they don't, or Sauron doesn't have the proprietary number to log the compute, th that ring to the other rings. You know, maybe the, the elves have changed their, you know, their signaling or whatever. Uh, this could be a way to do that technologically, right, Dennett? Oh yeah, no, I, I, and I love your universal remote analogy. You know, yeah. as once we make this a technology device that's connected yeah. through these various means, um, yeah. you, you definitely have different frequencies that, is, that that could be operating on some that are close, and so you get a little bit of the signal leaking through, um, mm -hmm. but you're not exactly locked on. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's there's a lot in the technology space that aligns, you know, and 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 I think Henry, as you pointed out, it comes down to the difference between the cell phone. And what we had when you wrote this, right? These were, um, to yeah. excuse my pun, quantum leaps forward have made this even more possible. Yeah. <laughs> well, and one thing, one thing I want to mention really quickly here, Ben, is that you know when you talk about the the proprietary numbers, I remember when I was a kid, uh, one of my friends had one of those watches where you could plug in the different, like you could control a TV with the watch. You just plugged in mm -hmm. the right number, right? And so I would go and yeah, you know, as a prank, I would turn off my grandpa's uh, TV, which he did not like, which. <laughs> threw me into hysterical. I thought that was hilarious. But the thing is, sometimes you could turn the volume up, but you couldn't turn the volume down, right? So it wasn't it wasn't exact. Uh, so that's a real world example of that. So uh, anyway, sorry, Ben, you were gonna you were gonna say something. Yeah, well, I mean that that goes exactly back to the why certain folks can uh, wear the ring more effectively than others, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not just it's you know you can think of it as this code mismatch, but you can also think of it as the structures in the brain of a hobbit. Or, mm -hmm. or or a human or or an elf just aren't all there. Um, mm -hmm, right. Whereas what whatever brain things are going on in Amaya's uh, brain, uh, <laughs> you know, the ring can fully connect and fully live in that situation. Whereas mm -hmm. when it talks to a hobbit, it's you know it's looking for the where's where's your where's your demigod section, um, and it's not there. <laughs> so all it can do is make you yeah. want to be a big gardener. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Well, I do love that. it. You know, it's kind of, you know, what are your ambitions, you know, and yeah. the ring really takes what what a, what a creature, whoever puts the ring on, takes their ambitions and heightens them. And so if you just want a simple life, it's the garden you want to rule over. If you want to take over the world, it's the planet. You want it, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I think that it's kind of interesting that it that it amplifies that. And the last thing here, the prolonging life. You know, I think this is also interesting from a technological standpoint because you have to imagine at some level this ring is possibly, uh, you know, doing genetic reorganizing, maybe messing with your gut biome. Uh, it's changing your organs and it's creating, you know, a, an extension of life on a body that may not really mm -hmm. have the biological capacity to live that long, right? Um, you know, we, we see this all the time. You know, we see this with even animals in captivity where they live, you know, 10 to 10 years longer than they're supposed to, things get a little dicey. You know, they're supposed to be eaten mm -hmm. earlier. Now, uh, I don't know mm -hmm. that we should eat the hobbits, but we can see that on the body, it's not used to living that long is all I'm saying. Well, it, the, 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 the jig is up very early mm -hmm. in, about right. this in, in chapter two of the Lord of the Rings, where, where Bilbo is talking to Gandalf and he says, he doesn't feel he's uh, living longer, but he's just stretched. He feels right. stretched like yep, yep. butter over too much bread. So, mm -hmm. uh, so what it does, what the ring doesn't do is give you more life. It mm -hmm. keeps the life you've got, but makes it kind of thinner, in, mm -hmm. you know, and, yeah. and, and, and not very pleasant. And this is a, I think this is a harking back to a Greek, a myth 
where okay. there was a goddess in love with a mortal and uh, the goddess says to Zeus, make my lover immortal. Um, but the, 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 the chap just gets older and older and more and more decrepit and has to be made <laughs> into a grasshopper. And Zeus said, yes, but you, you wanted him to make him immortal, but not ever youthful. Uh, and that was mm -hmm. the difference. So yeah. um, uh, Gandalf and Sauron are immortal. And so, to an extent, is Galadriel. Um, right. But the hobbits and human beings are not, and that is the that was a big theme in the whole of Tolkien's writing, and you've you've hit on it right there, Dan, with yeah. talking about the effects that a ring has, and you know, with Ben, that the ring um, accesses certain parts of your biological nature. Right. Only if you have them. So it's part of the <laughs> right. kind of, you know, impedance <laughs> yeah. mismatch that if you're mortal and you put on the ring, you don't actually you do live longer, but you have no more life. It's mm -hmm. just the life you have is kind of stretched until it becomes mean and meaningless. And this right. is why uh, Bilbo actually doesn't realize it's the ring that's doing it. He thinks mm. that he's because he's from a long lived family. He's just living longer. But, you know, e even in the Hobbit language, they say he's not living longer. He's looking well preserved as if he's been, you know, <laughs> yeah. pickled. So I think that is very much a part yeah. of the ring. And I think Tolkien addresses that quite specifically in his own literary mode. Yeah, yeah. I have no, to say, like I'm, I'm very, I'm very impressed with you, uh, Henry, because you quote the Lord of the Rings, uh, the, the the all of the books of Lord of the Rings, the way an evangelical preacher quotes the Bible. I mean, you are, you are really quite the scholar. You think you think I'm like that? I haven't been to a Tolkien Society meeting for ages. So, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, so very uh, impressive. Well, yes, very very impressive. Any last thought? I mean, are you are you satisfied? Have we have we done a good job here, Henry? I think so. I think there's a lot to think about. And it's mainly because the technology I was working with mm -hmm. uh, when I wrote the book originally is now is 20 was 20 years ago. And we've got mm -hmm. a lot further since. I mean, some of the physics is still pretty much out there. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of it, you know, the whole brains is pretty much a sort of speculative idea. And that mm -hmm. we still haven't reconciled quantum mechanics and gravity. And uh, 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 and so and and who knows when that if that will ever happen um yeah. but there's a lot of technological advances that have happened that could help like the amazing miniaturization of computers and ai uh, and um a lot of things can you know certainly ease the way to making the ring a plausible device that works yeah. as a device even the invisibility aspect which yeah. is amazing really well, yeah. I, I think it is amazing, to say the least. I mean, what so we've done gen here... Gen gentlemen, yeah. gentlemen, my gratitude. Yeah, what, what we've done <laughs> well, here is going to go down in history, I think. I, I, yeah, I think it, is, it all yeah. goes back to, you know, Bilbo's final riddle. What have I got in my pocket? And what, yeah, we've, got, yeah. what we've all got in our pocket now is yeah. a precursor to the ring. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and which is actually quite worrying because you know how addictive your phones are. Yes. Oh my goodness. And just like Bilbo says about the ring, he's getting mm -hmm. worried about where it is and where he can't find it. And he always has exactly. to take it out and look at it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's become to dominate his life. And he just wishes he didn't have it. But then at the same time, he doesn't want to get rid of it. So yep. I'm, yep. I'm like that with my phone. I know. <laughs> I <don't laughs> 
Yeah. Well, and you know, and the radiation concerns with an iPhone, these can give you some of the effects that the ring has on Bilbo and, and Frodo oh, as well. So uh, it gets pretty serious pretty quickly. But I think we've covered it all. Uh, I think we've done a great job, if I do say so myself. But if we haven't, you know, you can get in touch. Let us know about it. You can get in touch with the show on social media. You can find us on X. Uh, now, uh, that's weird to say still, but you can find us on X at uh, Pod on Facebook at FGGBT. But you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? Um, people can find me on most of the major social media platforms by flipping my name at Denon Michael. Facebook, you got to stick a prof in there at Prof Denon Michael. And my website is denonmichael.com. And of course, Dan, as we know, mm-hmm. I've started my YouTube, Physics of X, where X is everything except politics. Um, mm-hmm. And I was on YouTube long enough ago that that's just Michael Denon. I got that one right. snuck in. I, th- I think you actually got, if I remember correctly, I think you got onto the onto YouTube right when Henry was writing this book. So the technology yeah, is yeah, that very different. That may be about the same time, yeah. <laughs> very, very, very different. Uh, what about you, Ben? Where can people find you? Well, you can find me on all the major social media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? Spell that B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And Henry, I'm sure that you, despite the fact, uh, you know, you've been in touch with technology from a very long time. So I imagine you've got, you're on social media. And of course, people have to find this book, despite the fact that there's major revisions you have to do. We've given you a lot of work here. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, really, I'm having to go and give, I need a new project. Right. <laughs> so, so there you go. So where can people find the book and where can people find you? Well, I'm all over the internet like a cheap suit. Uh, mm-hmm. You can find me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at mm-hmm. at end of the peer, E-N-D-O-F-T-H-E-P-I-E-R. Um, and I'm on Facebook as, uh, I can't remember, Henry G. I'm on Instagram as Henry G22. Um, I'm on Mammoth as well. I have a couple of websites. One is part of the Occam's typewriter web uh, blog network. And um, also my book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth, you can find at a very short history of life on earth.com. Uh, and uh, so if you just put in Henry G, um, you're either going to find me or a medieval mayor of the city of Chester. Uh, and then okay. it's, it, it's up to you to decide which one you want. <laughs> both are extraordinarily interesting. So why not both? You don't have to, yeah. you don't have to just pick one. I'm, uh, I'm very, very easy to find. That's great. Uh, and you have to be. You know, I think you have to be. Uh, I'm a little more difficult to find. You can find me on X, formerly Twitter, at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram, at the Daniel J. Glenn, on Facebook, at Analytical Mastermind. And I have a website, DanielJGlenn.com. And if you're listening to this show, you want to watch it, we are on DanielJGlenn.com forward slash YouTube for all of your uh, fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technology needs. That's where we are. Uh, but before we end this, you know, I want to thank you very much, Henry, for being on the show. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's been so much fun, and hopefully you are, have been as excited and fulfilled uh, listening to this as we have been researching this. It was a lot of fun. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, and live long and prosper, gentlemen. Yes. You as Sorry. well. Sorry, I uh, just had to do that. <laughs> it's <laughs> no, that, okay. That works. Mixing, mixing, mixing genres here. But uh, it's, been, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been really, really interesting and instructive and has filled my mind with all sorts of exciting thoughts, well, which that's is great. what it's now, supposed to. It's supposed to. But if you feel that your mind is filled with these thoughts, remember, you need to take this information and do good with it. You know, we're giving you information that can be used to take over the world. 
So when you're given mm -hmm. that choice, you always want to be a superhero, never a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, ftriplegbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there ftriplegbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version, depending on what you like. We got it for you, and if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.